If you text PRESS ROW to 727272, you get a free one night game rental from Redbox. You know, video games are super fun and they're super expensive. And once you bust open that plastic, you're stuck with them. And that's why Redbox lets you try out the hottest new games risk-free. Right now, you can rent Middle Earth, Shadow of War, Destiny 2, NBA 2K18, and more. So just text PRESS ROW to 727272 for a free one-night game rental. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. The offer expires December 31st, 2017, subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. If you're not in Text Club, Redbox will send you an additional text with an invite to join their recurring alerts. Message and data rates may apply. For terms, visit redbox.com slash textclub. And for the privacy policy, visit redbox.com slash privacy. Hey, this week, do you want to battle against me and Pasta Padre and TJ, that sports gamer, and Snaggle in a FIFA tournament? Well, you can. Starting today, we are launching two Press Row FIFA 18 tournaments, one on the PlayStation 4, one on the Xbox One, with $100 in prizes, $80 to the winner and $20 to the runner-up. All you have to do is go to gamersaloon.com slash press row, and right there you can register for both or one of those tournaments. Again, it's FIFA 18 on the PlayStation 4 or the Xbox One. We got tournaments for both. And if you tweet back at us with proof that you joined, you'll be entered to win a big-time console game of your choice that we will give you. So not only can you beat me, well, you crush me at FIFA, everybody knows that, but you can battle TJ, Pasta, Snaggle, and all of us in these Press Row Podcast FIFA 18 tournaments. Just go to gamersaloon.com slash press row, register today, and let's have some fun. And of course, this episode of the Press Row Podcast is brought to you by Franchise Hockey Manager 4, just released the only licensed game by the NHL on the PC. It is the most hockey ever. It has obviously a whole bunch of brand new stuff for this season, for the 27-18 year, including the Vegas Golden Knights. And by the way, have you noticed they're playing great on their first three games? You can play any NHL season ever. There are loads of improvements to Franchise Hockey Manager 4. It's doing great. It's getting a lot of great reviews. We're getting a ton of great feedback from fans of the game. Check out Franchise Hockey Manager 4 today. You can get it on Steam or at ootpdevelopments.com. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Press Row Podcast. I'm Rich Grisham. In for Brian Weedai, who is unfortunately suspended. Brian, you know what you did. Hopefully he makes it back next week. I am excited because tonight we are talking with somebody who uh, I just find so interesting and I've been looking forward to this for a while since we uh, since we connected. It is Matt Piscatella from the NPD. Matt, welcome to the Press Row Podcast. Hello, Rich. It's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So lots to talk about tonight. I mean, the theme is the big business of sports games. That's what this is all about, um, but there's going to be a lot of lot of different uh, nuances to that discussion, I'm sure. But before we get into all that good stuff, Matt, first let me ask you about what you do right now. You work at NPD, and uh, what what do you do there, and and what is that? Uh, you know, what's your role, and how do you go about doing it? All right, yes. Yeah, so I have the obnoxious and somewhat ridiculous uh, title, uh, video game industry expert. And uh, what I get to do uh, is a lot of fun. I get to go out and speak to retailers and publishers and developers and fans about the business, uh, how the market's performing, the trends, uh, forecasts, and all that stuff. So my job is to live, breathe, 
uh, and talk video games until I can't anymore. And it's a pretty good deal. If I would have told my 12 year old self, uh, this is what I would be doing. I would have said, uh, I was a liar. So you work uh, obviously for NPD. So, I mean, are you, you're gathering this information and it's being published back to the, uh, back to the people that you're talking to, right? Like that's how this all works, but you also make some certain information public as well. So talk a little bit more about about that aspect of, of what you do yourself individually and at NPD uh, as a whole. Yeah, so we track everything in the video game or entertainment, uh, interactive entertainment space. Uh, we do it in a few ways. So on the package side or the physical good, like the disc in a box, uh, we work with all of the retailers out there to gather all of the sales information, all of the what they call POS or point of sale data. Uh, we uh, com- compile that, aggregate it, uh, make sure it's clean, and, and then uh, analyze that and give that back out to publishers and retailers and anyone who's interested. On the digital side, a very similar thing, uh, but we work with a select group of publishers. We call a digital leader panel. Uh, it's a it's a service that we're in beta, basically, and looking to expand where we cover the point-of-sale data on the digital space. And then uh, for the rest of the market, we have various ways of tracking it, either through survey data uh, or just good old-fashioned research uh, of the secondary nature. So um, it's our job to be the, the reference point uh, for the industry with the, the best-in-class data and the best-in-class insights. And I guess I guess that's where I come in. So uh, that, that's what makes it kind of fun. I just love MPD Day every month. I love seeing the charts. I love seeing what's selling. I love seeing that almost every month there's one, if not more than one, sports game in that. And some months, you know, three, four, five in that mm-hmm. top ten. I love looking at the hardware sales. I love... Just all that stuff I just find so fascinating um, in, in a number of ways. I mean, obviously, one way, it's like a competition and like anything else. Who won? Who didn't? What were the surprise successes? What were the surprise disappointments? Uh, but also, just in it, it's such a fascinating way to, to see what's really important from an economic standpoint every month. So with that, what did you do prior to arriving at MPD? So, I mean, you, you didn't just, I imagine, just go to college and, and walk in through the doors of MPD. You've been in the <laughs> games business uh, prior to this. I know a little bit about it just from following you on Twitter. But I'm really interested in, in you know, what you did uh, prior to MPD. Oh, cool. So I've spent about 15 years in the publishing space. So I started working for Activision. Uh, way back in 2005, uh, the first product I worked on was Over the Hedge, uh, way back when, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and what I did at Activision was I had a number of roles in, in trade marketing, basically uh, marketing to the retailers as they put the games on the shelves. I also worked in business intelligence, uh, business planning, retail planning, sales planning, uh, which is all different ways of moving numbers around. Uh, and then I've spent the last uh, nine-ish years at Warner Brothers Interactive as the vice president of sales planning and analysis there, where um, we went from, gosh, uh, the number 27 publisher in the market. And when I left, we were number three. So I, I got to look at every single thing with a number, whether that was a green light forecast or a annual operating plan or uh, you know any kind of performance metric uh, you could look at. And uh, then just trying to figure out what are the best ways that we can make products that made people uh, excited and, and want to uh, want to buy them and want to play them. So um, any kind of thing with a number over the last 15 years I've looked at. So 
Uh, there's a, there's only a few of us out there that do this kind of thing, and I feel very blessed and happy now to be in this role where I can actually talk to people a lot because uh, in publishing life, you don't get to talk a lot about what you're working on. Uh, in this role, I, I have the opportunity to just chat with people about games and try to help them understand the industry beyond just the marketing, like why are things happening, how do things happen, and and I, and I hope I get an opportunity to do that so people are just more, they're, they're better informed and they can understand, you know, why things are happening as they are. I am, that's, again, why I'm so excited uh, to talk to you. This, this is stuff I just, I, I love slicing and dicing the, this industry from, from that perspective. So let me ask you this. What is the, how would you ass- assess the state of business of sports video games, particularly on consoles, right now in the fall of 2017? So it's a, it's a very deep market. Um, and what I mean by that is that uh, engagement or player engagement or the way players are um, connecting with games, especially the sport games now, is is better than it's ever been. Like people are, uh, the people that are playing the sport games are playing them for longer periods. They're engaging with them more. They're playing various modes. They're they're spending a, a good deal of money uh, while they're doing that. So it's a wonderfully, and I, and I mean this in a very positive way. Uh, it's a wonderfully boring category in a sense because uh, it's one of the most stable. Uh, super genres in the industry. We don't see big swings from year to year. Um, it's a since everything is annualized, and the the customer bases have been with these products for a long time. Uh, it's always a question of refinement and trying to get uh, a few more people in, while also um, increasing the engagement of the player base that already exists. So it's uh, it's fantastic that what it is though, and how it's different today than it was say ten years ago is that the slate of titles we're talking about is a lot more narrow. Uh, so back in the day, we would have far more variety. The number of sport games was higher. You'd have multiple sport games within a sport. You'd have multiple types of games uh, within a particular sport, like the arcade versions as well as the Sims, uh, the Sim versions. And now we've really kind of really narrowed it down to, for the most part, one big game per sport and that has its its pluses and its minuses for sure so i mean we've talked about this over the history of this show and it has that you know the number of games and the variety of games has certainly changed from large numbers to smaller volumes but it, it feels like it's a little bit on the upswing in 2017 it sort of reached a nadir i believe sort of around the 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 launch of the current gen now, the PlayStation 4, the Xbox One, um, with, with as far as the number of titles. And I think we've seen some new entrants that have established themselves a little bit. So, for example, NBA Playgrounds has has made an appearance and things like Super Mega Baseball, which is not licensed, but you know has an impact. Rocket League, while not a sports game, could certainly be considered at least in that genre. There's more racing games again now. Like we, the the, the number, the sheer number of racing games is on the upswing. So it feels to me like exactly what you said. Yes, there are. There's a lot less variety, but it feels like there's more now than there was two or three years ago. 
Do the numbers yes. bear that out, or is that just, uh, or is that just what I feel, but may not be actually quantitatively correct? That is absolutely quantitatively correct. It also mirrors the overall market trend. I don't know if you remember, uh, but in 2013, uh, like Apple phone or iPhones were going to kill consoles. I don't know if you remember that, but mobile was going to be everything, and right. consoles were dead, and this was going to be the last console generation. Right. So uh, what had happened? Uh, so just as a as an idea of the scale we're talking about, uh, in 2010, uh, basically the the tail end of the Wii. Um, but it was the biggest year in terms of the number of releases that hit the market. There were over 750 games that hit retail shelves, a bo- disc in a box. 750 games hit the market in 2010. Uh, by 2013, that had fallen to 210. So we saw a dramatic pullback in terms of the support uh, from publishers as there was a lot of uncertainty in the market. Uh, over the last three years, confidence has been restored. Uh, we're seeing an increase in game count across most genres. Some of them aren't so much. But we're also now seeing the return of studios like Nickelodeon, which today announced they were going to get back into the console space. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but the SpongeBob games back on the GBA uh, were massive sellers, and they, they, ever, they had all left. So um, you're right. That trend is absolutely correct. And we are seeing the rebound just because people are now much more confident in the space. Uh, and a lot of that is driven by um, just the number of consoles that are out there. But it's also driven in, in a big way by the engagement uh, with folks sticking around and with the opportunity to sell them post-launch content, uh, which is really driving a lot of this uh, title growth, this, this more investment in the space. So, I mean, that it's hard to pay attention to video games at all these days if that's not, uh, it, it, if you're paying any attention, that's a big topic, right? Microtransactions, loot crates, prize boxes, ultimate team, VC, whatever it is, this is permeating the entire video game. Well, not the entire video game space, but it certainly is dominating a significant number of sports games as well as obviously non-sports games so it's i don't think it's any stretch to say that these have dramatically improved the top line and the bottom line of the income statements of companies like electronic arts and take two is it as stark as if these things didn't exist perhaps some of these sports franchises wouldn't exist or is it not quite that, and it's just a, a nice extra bonus that these publishers get from these various, you know, post-unit sale revenue. It, it's kind of hard to imagine the landscape today for sport games if uh, Ultimate Team wasn't a thing or if MLB The Show didn't have packs. Uh, I don't know what that landscape would look like. In the sports genre in particular, it's been such an ingrained part of the experience for so long. Uh, I think it'd be a a very different landscape. Would those games still exist? I'm sure. Uh, A football game will always sell. A basketball game will always sell. Would Would they be the kinds of games they are now with the breadth and depth that they go into? I don't think so. Would they have like the daily updates and the live stats and the investment? Uh, it's really hard to, to think it would, um, but I don't know. Like, uh, all I know is that when you look at what these games are 
and why people go to them. Uh, this, like the ultimate teams and the ability to build your own team, uh, like via the card system, is such a big component. Like, I don't know what those games are without them. Do you get a sense with with the, the people that you talk to? Do you, do you get any sense as to the percentage of people that buy a Madden or a FIFA or an NBA 2K or an NHL play the ultimate team modes and then even more spend money in those ultimate team modes? Is it 50%? Is it 5%? What's your sense on, on that? I wish I had great data on that kind of thing, and, and I don't. Um, we do have some guidance out there. For example, uh, back in March, uh, the, the most wonderful video game executive for someone who tries to track what's going on in terms of the numbers, Blake Jorgensen from EA, who is just fantastic and actually offering insight into what's going on, uh, came out and talked about that, that, you know, the ultimate team were driving $800 million for them for EA. Uh, <laughs> I mean, wait, hold on. Let me just let everyone let that sink in. Eight hundred million dollars in one year that is an astounding figure with 20 percent growth right so we're not talking 800 and it's stable or maybe it might be 805 this year uh, you're talking 20 percent growth to get to 800 uh back in 2014 they mentioned 40 i think it was 42 percent growth so you're still talking on a year year basis growth in the nice double digits. Um, so what is that this year? Is that $960 million? Is that over a billion dollars? Uh, the, the entire interactive entertainment space in the United States is a $30 billion market. So, you know, you take $500 million, you know, basically kind of like the U.S. slice of that or, or $450 million. Out of a $30 billion market, that's meaningful. That is a meaningful chunk of total game spend. Done right. So... Yeah, it's 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 significant. It's a big chunk. So, um, I wish I had engagement numbers. I imagine they're pretty they're pretty okay. Hey, we're gonna take just a second and talk about how you can win a big time sports video game this fall. All you got to do is go to gamersaloon.com/slash/pressrow and enter to win one of the two official Press Row podcast FIFA 18 tournaments. We're running one this week. For FIFA 18, you can play in the tournament on either the PS4 or the Xbox One. Just go to gamersaloon.com slash press row. It's only $8 to enter, and the winner walks away with 80 bucks, and the runner-up walks away with 20 bucks. And it doesn't matter whether you're playing on PS4 or Xbox One. We got you covered. Gamersaloon.com slash press row. And if you tweet back at us or email us and you prove that you enter the tournament, you will also be entered to win a free copy of a big-time sports video game this fall. We'll have a whole bunch of selections for you. You can make your pick. So if you haven't been able to get all of the games this year, well, here's a great chance to win one. Gamersaloon.com slash press row. Enter either the Xbox One or the PS4 tournaments for FIFA 18, and you can battle against me and TJ and Snaggle and Pasta and all of us and you could win a copy of a sports video game of your choice. Gamersaloon.com slash press row. Now, back to the show. So what's, <laughs> what, what does, I mean, Ultimate Team has been around for, I don't know how many years. Is it 10 years? It's got to be close to 10 years, if not Gosh. even more than 10 years, right? But it, it's yeah. been around. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, what I'm saying. Like, it's hard to think of it without it anymore, right. you know? So 
and it's changed over time. And then, of course, it's been introduced. It's, I believe it started in FIFA. And then I don't know how many years it took for, to get to Madden. Probably not more than three. Uh, I, I would assume, again, don't know. Um, it's, it's, I'm trying to sort of put my finger on the pulse of when it really became the driver of the games now and i don't even mean that in in the sense of you know there's plenty of arguments from people who love sports games about how you know they they lament about how ultimate team sort of pushes other they feel needed improvements to the game lower on the priority list you know the the publishers regularly say that's not true and i believe them you know as somebody who has a very clear picture into what it takes to put together these games. I definitely believe them, um, mm-hmm. especially because they know at the end of the day, your core fans, the people who've been with you longest, you have to continue to deliver for them. It, it's just, I'm trying to, it, there was a, there was a time and we, we could look back, we can probably see it, but when ultimate team really sort of became the focal point, as opposed to this sort of, you know, cute or interesting little feature that a lot of people didn't even comprehend. Yeah. Um, I think the first time that I really realized how, how big it was, was when we started seeing in the UK, uh, all of the accounts spoofing and basically people trying to steal other people's accounts right, in right. order to play in order to buy uh, FIFA packs. Like that's when you first went, okay, wait a minute. This is, this is a very big deal, and this could be driving a lot of things. And I, and I think that was, man, 20, gosh, 2012, 2013, maybe? Sounds right. If that was the ballpark. Yep. So, you know, when, when that kind of stuff hap- starts happening, you realize that it's it's gotten big. Mm. Um, it's, it's broke out into the mass market in a, in a big way. And, uh, and that's when you kind of know that, okay, this is a meaningful and significant uh, thing that, that will, will, will grow uh, over time. What is the trend in unit sales? So we know the trend in post unit sale, digital revenue, again, ultimate team and all that, you know, we just talked about it, how it's grown from zero, probably 10 years ago to nearly a billion for EA and, and multiple billions when you factor in some of the other franchises. What's the trend with unit sales? Is there, are they also going up for all or some of these titles, or are they flat, or are they even going lower, even as the digital revenue continues to significantly grow? So, as with anything, it's complicated. The, <laughs> the console transition, where basically we went from, just in the past two years, we went from having PS3, 360, uh, PS4, and Xbox One, uh, to just now basically PS4 and Xbox One as viable consoles, um, and then you go back even further when you actually had like a viable, uh, even a Wii platform way back in the day. It, it's caused uh, so the the straight number of units overall has come down, but that's true for all genres. In the sports games, in particular, it's difficult as well because they have mobile versions that are exceedingly popular and well done. And so when you're talking about like the scale of a a Madden, for example, uh, how do you, how do you quantify total player engagement um, without looking at mobile and the console um, and in FIFA's case, PC, especially around the world. Um, So (laughs) 
my, my gut tells me more people are playing these games, but actually getting a handle on like just raw unit sold is actually a lot more difficult uh, than you might think. You can see a couple of things in the trending, and you guys have talked about this before, uh, where NBA 2K has now become the biggest sports game, uh, has taken the crown. And of course, FIFA as a property continues to grow on a, year, on a yearly basis. And the other franchise that continues to grow on a yearly basis is MLB The Show, uh, which no one really talks about too much, but on a pound-for-pound basis, I'd put up there with any of the other big sport games in terms of uh, the business around it. So um, overall, I, I would have to say that player counts are up, but it's really tough to figure out exactly what that player count might be. I'm fascinated to hear you talk about MLB The Show. It doesn't get the sales numbers. It doesn't chart an MPD, except usually, I think, in like March and April, right? It typically falls out after that. And and for with good reason, the biggest reason being that it's only available on the PlayStation platform. So you're automatically yes. cut out of you know Xbox or and, and Nintendo. But you're saying that it's growing. I did not know that. And yep. I'm glad to hear you say that. Talk a little bit more about the show. So it... it, it it always sort of, you know, we hear regularly from Sony San Diego. I think they, well, not here regularly, but they, they do certainly reference on occasion how they're not the big, huge studio, right? They're sort of a smaller team and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so um, I, we, I sort of then got the sense that maybe it wasn't this big moneymaker that like really stood out. It was more of a you know, this is just a, another quality game and a good reason for certain groups of fans, baseball fans in particular, to, to you know lean towards Sony. But it sounds to me, by what you're saying, that it's more than that. MLB The Show is, uh, is, is more than that. Is that the case? Uh, so I, I'd say that... Um, it, so this year in particular, it's performed even better. If, you've been, uh, if you look at the charts for this year... MLB The Show uh, hung out a lot longer than it has in prior years. So nice. the, the, legs, the legs this year um, have been better. They've improved so much of the game. And you're talking about one of the highest quality sports games. And, and heck, that one of the highest quality games overall you're going to get uh, in the market is MLB The Show. And it's un- it's, from a market perspective, it's unfortunate that Xbox One players don't have a, uh, a sim baseball experience. It'd be great if they did. Um, if they did, obviously the market would be a much bigger. Um, but when you look at you know the kind of games that are growing, you look at FIFA and you look at MLB uh, from a baseball like a game uh, a game sales perspective. Um, it, it has to be encouraging uh, to keep putting development dollars there and to keep trying to. To make those properties bigger, and and I, I know I'm somewhat evading the question, um, <laughs> but I hope you don't mind uh, some stuff I, I can't get too detailed about. Oh, of course, <laughs> uh, you yeah, absolutely, I get it. So, uh, with MLB the show, do you think that Diamond Dynasty is as important to that franchise as Ultimate Team is to EA's and, you know, my team slash, you know, VC through the park and all that other stuff is to NBA 2K because it feels like they were late to later to the game with that mode 
you know, they were than than the others. And even the first couple of go rounds of it weren't inspired, shall I say? Although it's difficult to, you know, these these modes take time to put into the market and get in people's hands and get feedback. So I get that too. So is Diamond Dynasty as important to the show as those other modes are, or the you know the the similar modes are in the other big sports game franchises? I don't know. My gut tells me that your ARPU is going to be a little bit better because uh, your your baseball fan, in terms of the demographic, uh, the the demographic the demographic picture of that fan. Uh, generally has a different purchase pattern than the demographics of maybe some of the other sports. But I, I really don't know. All I know is personally, <laughs> I dropped about two bills into that mode this year uh, into card packs. Wow. Uh, and all I, all I got out of it was a lousy David Murphy. Uh, but uh, 200 it, in addition to the 60 bucks you spent on the game in the first place. It, it, yeah, I have a very strange relationship with MLB The Show. I play... <laughs> I play a lot of MLB The Show, so maybe a little bias is coming through. But uh, whew, I, my thumbs hurt from MLB The Show. Hey, I'll look, just say I love, that. I love the show. I played it in a gamer saloon tournament just a couple days ago. Right? It's it's obviously it's baseball playoff time, so baseball is at the top of mind of everybody. But still, you know, and that that's something that I've noticed too. And you you alluded or you didn't allude to it. You said it earlier, right? Like I play. I play the games now for longer periods of time than I used to. I will play Pro Evolution for a year. I will play MLB The Show for nine to ten months. I'm playing Madden for most of the year because I'm in a league with my friends. You know, I I play less of the games by volume, but the ones that I play with, excuse me, the ones that I play, I tend to play for a long period of time, although I feel like I'm the anomaly because I'm not doing, generally speaking, the ultimate teams of the diamond dynasty i'm going old school i'm playing my franchises i i feel like kind of like a dinosaur in that case which obviously i am considering considering the dollars do you do you sort of uh get the same sentiment that is i believe as i said earlier not exactly true out there but do, do you get the sentiment that uh, the uh, more traditional modes are not getting the love and intention that they that they would otherwise, or do you subscribe to that theory not being true? So just reading how the games are made and how these modes are cared for, it seems to me that some of the modes, like like this, the, the franchise mode, it seems to me like just reading from how they're being addressed is that they know they have a core base of people that have probably been playing those modes for a lot of years, they're probably going to stick with it. You're probably not going to get a whole bunch of new new folks into those modes in a meaningful way. And so I, I, it reads to me like it's a maintain and hope to incrementally improve those modes. While the, the, the ultimate team or the card stuff is where the action's happening. That's how I would read it. I don't know if that's the case. But I do know that you're right when you talk about staying in certain games longer and, and playing uh, a smaller assortment games for a longer period of time. That's, that's absolutely true right now, especially in the console space. We've transitioned completely from games as being 12 hour to 20 hour experiences that you buy day one, you play for two weeks and then you trade it in 
two weeks later for something else. Um, now you buy a game and you engage with it regularly for six months or a year. You put, you know, a few hours into it a week. Uh, and before you know it, you're a hundred, 200 hours. Um, <laughs> it's so like, it's that we, we've changed from games as a product to games as a service. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sport games have led that process the entire way. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Hey, everybody, we're going to take just a moment here to thank our sponsor this week, Redbox. You know, everybody knows that Redbox is about renting movies and video games for cheap. But did you know that Redbox also sells used games starting as low as $4.99? So for the price of one of those extra large caramel frap, double espresso, no foam, two foam drinkity drinks that you love, and you know you do, you could start the most legendary game night tradition ever, playing your hearts out all the way up till bedtime for way less than you'd pay in store. You can keep your kids quietly entertained all month long. I know something about that so that you can practice that extremely complex and extremely painful yoga pose and get it down to perfection so that you can impress your entire class with your superhuman flexibility. Yeah, of course, because that's what I do. That's right. Buying games for Redbox is a way cheaper option, and this time you keep them forever. So right now, Doom, Dark Souls 3, Madden NFL 17 are all for sale. So head over to the box and do game night on the cheap. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. Let's talk some specifics. Not that we haven't been already, but some more specifics. Number one. Where does NBA 2K f- really fit in the overall Take Two world, right? I mean, Take Two is the uh, publisher, or the you know, Take Two publishes NBA 2K via 2K Sports. Take Two is also the home of Grand Theft Auto, the ridiculously money printing, you know, incomprehensibly profitable revenue producing franchise. They've got Red Dead coming next year, which will, I'm sure, be a significant revenue producer. NBA 2K is big, a big deal, but how big of a deal is it in the overall Take-Two umbrella? I mean, forget about just the Take-Two umbrella. NBA 2K is an, an incredibly crucial game for the industry as a whole. It's a annualized title. It sells among the top five titles every holiday quarter. It has incredible legs where the previous year's version is still going to be in the top 10 the same month that the new version comes out. Uh, So when you have, especially the video game industry, when you have a property that you can count on for that kind of performance on a year-in, year-out basis, it makes... Well, it makes, first of all, it makes the finance people really happy uh, because you know you're not going to have these huge peak and valley years unless they're peaks in a really good way because um, your, your friends down the way have, have put out a new, uh, a new GTA. Um, but it, it allows for such uh, incredible stability, and it also provides stability for the market as a whole. It's, it's one of, I think, the crucial franchises, and Madden's up there too, um, and on a global basis, FIFA absolutely is. I mean, I don't know what it what the landscape looks like uh, for retailers, even if these big sport games weren't what they are. I mean, they're just incredible drivers for the business as a whole. They're reliable, they're predictable in a lot of ways, and they help people plan their businesses uh, in very smart ways. And you know, these are the kind of games that allow folks to take risks on new IP or other types of games where, Mm. you know, your risk reward profile is not 
at the same level as it is for something like an NBA 2K. So, I mean, they're, I can't say enough about how critical games like this are and how meaningful they are to the industry as a whole. And what's really interesting about Take-Two is they divested themselves of all of their other sports games. And, you know, they're the CEO, Strauss Zelnick, has been on record multiple times saying how he wants to own all of his IP. And for the most part, he's made that happen. But NBA 2K is the one remaining, you know, it doesn't fit the Take-Two mold as a licensed sports game. Like they, well, I guess, you know, WWE, I take that back. WWE 2K is another franchise. So it's not a sim sports game, but it is certainly in that genre, although I don't play wrestling games. But it still is, you know, like unlike EA, where, you know, their sports division, right, is a big deal. It's almost like an mm-hmm. anomaly. And they did divest themselves of MLB. They had MLB 2K for, for years, and they had NHL 2K. It's been a while, but, you know, a lot of people even forget NHL 2K exists. It's been a while. It, it, it doesn't quite fit the mold. So that obviously tells you that, boy, it must be making a lot of money for them to sort of, in these cases, go against their general philosophy of owning all of their own IP. Yeah, and, you know, and for you can see it now. Like, uh, everyone wants to be the big gorilla in a particular sport that makes everyone else kind of go find something else to do. And, you know, credit to... Uh, EA for continuing to fight for that NBA space, and by all accounts, uh, I understand NBA Live is a is a far better product than it's been in years. Um, but man, that's a that's a big hill to climb to try to take out uh, what is basically as big a franchise, as big an annual franchise as there is in NBA 2K. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's just one of those results of the market consolidating over the last few years or the last 10 years, maybe uh, consolidating in, in ways and uh, the market finding uh, its optimal points at, on these individual sports. Like what, what title really does things better and bigger than everyone else and, and kind of uh, knocks the competitors out of the way. Talk about NBA live. So what it, are there signs of life? What do you sense from the franchise, which has had a couple of missed years and a couple of false starts, and then last year, it uh, or the year before, it did not sell very many copies? What's your take on that? On EA's con- continuing to exist, and uh, you know, perhaps on the right path, NBA game. Well, the data for September is not released yet, so. <laughs> I can't be too. I can't say anything about its performance for sure, uh, but I'm encouraged that uh, they continue to try to improve the product and put out a product that's um, competitive. And you know, just from listening to to your show the last few weeks, uh, hearing about how it's uh, targeted a slightly different audience uh, than say NBA 2K is. You know, NBA 2K is very focused on the people that know. NBA 2K, where NBA Live is a little bit more friendly to the, the new user. I think that's a smart approach. Uh, it's what you have to do to, to try to differentiate yourself. So um, it's encouraging to see that kind of thing going on. And and I hope they're successful because, uh, you know, the more games, the better. And, and competition is always good for the consumer and generally makes the market more efficient. So um, I hope I hope they do very well with it. But I, I don't know. 
Speaking of competition, let's talk FIFA versus Pro Evo. Everybody in the world knows that from a sales perspective and a revenue perspective, FIFA is not just beats Pro Evo, it beats almost every other game made. But what does that competition look like, particularly in North America, between the two big soccer franchises? Um, it's one-sided. Uh, it's one-sided in a pretty big, pretty big way. Uh, FIFA is is far bigger and uh, continuing to grow on a year-to-year basis. Um, it, it, Pro Evo is a great game. It's it's very much targeted to a, a very uh, dedicated niche of folks. Um, I don't know from a market perspective if you could even really compare the two. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a pretty big gap. Is Pro Evo profitable? And is is and or is there reason for fans of it like me, wildly, wildly big fan of Pro Evo? Any reason for us to be concerned? Um, well, so in any in, in any way you look at it, um, the football or the the soccer market in the U.S. is not what's going to be driving decision making. Uh, obviously, um, we are uh, basically we're, we're a nice to have. In that market, uh, FIFA is a big franchise in the U.S., but it's not the franchise like it is around the world. So um, I don't even have a perspective on the global performance. Uh, I I just know our little slice of the world um, and how that performs there. So I I really couldn't tell you. They keep getting made, though. So if they keep getting made, then that that bottom line must be black, not red. Right. That's what I keep telling myself, (laughs) right? Like, I don't want... Pro Evo to go anywhere. I love the game. And Konami, as I've talked about on the show, right? Konami has pretty much divested itself for the most part of console games. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, sure. and But they keep Pro Evo coming out. So, right. I mean, there must be some, like you said, some black numbers instead of red numbers with Pro Evo. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure they could figure out a way to make a Pachinko version of this. But for now, uh, like, if it's getting made from those guys, and it's got to be doing pretty well. But, yeah, I really don't know. Let's talk about Madden 18 versus maybe Madden 17, 16. What are the sales numbers look like? What are the uh, what are the what's the overall numbers look like for Madden? And where is Madden in the overall landscape in terms of importance in a you know from a quantitative perspective? So Madden is the bellwether of the industry, and what I mean by that is. And it has been for as long as I've been in the business. Uh, the first signal of what kind of holiday it's going to be is what does Madden do? Like Everyone wants to know, like, where's Madden at? Um, because historically, it's been a real good guide to getting an idea of how the next few months are going to go. Um, the way the market is now, um, the ultimate team stuff is driving so much of the business and it's growing at such a rate that it's really hard to get a solid understanding of where they're at. Um, on a year to year basis, it doesn't change much. Uh, you get some years where it comes up a little bit, some years it goes down, but it's, a, it's been for some time now, a very steady business on the game side with incredible growth on the ultimate team side. So, uh, overall, it hasn't lost any of its importance. It's still a massive game. 
it's a well-made game, obviously, and they continue to improve it. Uh, and there's no reason at all to have any kind of concern. Um, for that franchise, it is it is the preeminent uh, uh, mass market game uh, outside of maybe Call of Duty uh, for the holiday quarter. So I expect it to be in the top 10, probably top 6. Uh, maybe it sneaks into the top five. It has a really good Q4 with a lot of promotion. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, steady as she goes with better engagement uh, and better ultimate team spending, and, and you've got a winner. So it keeps rocking. Let's talk about the Switch then. What sort of market is there for sports games on on the Switch? Um, you know, myself along with Brian, I've argued with both Brian and Cat Bailey I predicted that FIFA on the Switch in particular would be a big success. NBA 2K is on the Switch. You know, what, what's your take, uh, your early take on how those two games have performed and will perform on the Switch? And then maybe talk a little bit overall about if the Switch will have a home for, you know, the non-Nintendo, right? Not We're not talking Mario Golf or Mario Tennis, which hopefully they make because those are typically fun games. But like, what is what what does the switch look like from as far as sports games uh, from your perspective? So the switch is interesting, and I know that what the pe- what people want to do when they see the switch is they want to default into framing it like the Wii or the Wii U or even the GameCube. They want to think of it like a deten- the traditional Nintendo console, which is like oh, it's targeted at kids, it's targeted at families. Um, you know, these kinds of games don't sell here. What the Switch has been so far is a core gamer machine. Um, it coming with Zelda at launch um, and Cart coming later. Uh, to this point, the, the mo- it's more often you'll have a core gamer owning a Switch than a family or a kid. So that, you know, what does that mean? That means that your core gamer is already, if they're a sports gamer and they're a core gamer, they're already probably invested in one of the games on PS4 or Xbox One. However, when Odyssey starts showing up here in a couple weeks and we start getting more inventory in and the Switch shows up on Ellen or you know any of those other big mass market uh, shows and mom sees the Switch for the first time because she probably hasn't seen it yet, <laughs> and goes out to buy, you know, little Johnny or Janie a, a Switch this holiday. I think that's when we're going to start seeing big movement on these titles um, that you know might not fit a core buyer, like a core gaming customer yet, uh, but will fit a mass market customer in a little bit later. So, I guess what I'm saying is um, long legs and some delayed gratification, uh, but. I fully expect these games to do well. So right now, you look at FIFA on the eShop. It's at number four today, um, which is fantastic placement uh, on the eShop. And uh, NBA 2K has been up there in the top five, six uh, since it launched. So I expect these to be very slow burners. Um, And when we start seeing the big uptick in Switch like we should over the course of the next year, I think you're going to start seeing these mass market titles start uh, jumping up uh, on the charts and and performing even better. But for now, it's going to be a little bit of a slow burn uh, as we kind of transition into that mass market. So do you see Madden, for example, coming onto the Switch next year? Do you see 
NHL, NBA Live. Do you see more entrants coming onto the Switch? Uh, EA has proven they're going to be conservative and they're going to take it slow and they're going to think about things very thoroughly. So um, I wouldn't even hazard a guess. Um, I would imagine... So given the scale of the Switch forecast as I look at it, in terms of what kind of hardware units this thing should ultimately push if things continue on a normal trajectory uh, and the software continues to flow in, it's going to be a very difficult console to ignore. Um, so I guess I'd frame it that way, that uh, everyone's still in a bit of a wait-and-see approach. This holiday is very important. If, if, these, if FIFA and NBA 2K do well over the holiday, then I think you know, we start seeing uh, some new ones start rolling out. Interesting. Uh, who's going to win? What's going to be the winner of the sports game, the fall sports games, or 2017, not just fall, but the, the whole year? Who's going to be the top-selling sports game? Oh, it's it's NBA 2K every day. Um, that That is a... Um, it's very hard to see the momentum on that property slowing down. Um, and it just continues to get stronger. So uh, NBA 2K is, is the game. And, um, you know, it has good competition, but that'll be the one that'll end up taking the proverbial sports game crown until, until OOTP comes to console and I can, <laughs> I can buy all the copies of that. <clears throat> Trust me, nothing would make me happier than that, my friend. <laughs> uh, so with, with NBA 2K, you see it not being not suffering at all from any of the controversy real or fabricated so to speak and i don't mean that to, to be disrespectful to people who don't like how vc was implemented this year you you don't it sounds like you don't see any quantitative negativity on nba 2k from a sales perspective i really don't um there might be some but i don't think it'll be I don't think you'll be able to see it uh, just looking at the numbers. Um, perhaps, I mean, uh, I don't have the depth of data I'd really need to do that, but um, I, I don't see that being a huge issue. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, whenever these big controversies happen, whether it's Modern Warfare 2 uh, with a dedicated server issue and the huge boycott that was planned, and of course it became the best-selling game uh, of the year, and grew significantly from the first release. You, you know, you, it's difficult to really figure out um, what's hurtful and what isn't. I, I'd say that anytime there's this much passion about a game where this many people would be vocal about a thing, it generally shows a strong interest and um, customer relationship. They care. What scares me as an analyst when I'm looking at, at things like you know, Twitter mentions and, and Facebook likes is when nobody cares. <laughs> so right. if, if nobody cared about it, I'd be much more worried than if everyone was upset about something, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally <laughs> makes sense. Absolutely you know, does. Uh, so I, I don't see it being a huge issue. Um, but you know, I know some of the review scores have been a little harsh because of it uh the youtube community has been hit and miss on it um but ultimately i think you know these are games that that sell to mass market folks 
uh, you know, sport games. You have a lot of people that buy sport games that they'll maybe buy one or two games a year. They'll buy Madden and they'll buy Call of Duty. And they won't watch any video game coverage. They might have their, their friend or their cousin who likes games more who might try to tell them about some stuff. But they're buying one or two games. And, you know, they're playing the game like, hey, you know, I'll try this. You know, I'll buy some packs or, you know, I don't care. I'll, I'll buy this thing um, because that's their game. And I think, you know, that's still the case with sports gamers is, um, you know, you'll have a vocal community of folks who don't like it for reasons outside of that particular game. They just philosophically are opposed. I totally get it. But it's it's not something that I think is really going to change the trajectory of a, of a product um, unless something really egregious or stupid happens. And, and, you know, that's just not what's going on right now. With all of the incredible amounts of money being made in licensed sports video games, why are we not seeing any new entrants? Uh, at least new entrants or reemergence of those, uh, you know, on of simulation sports games on the console. Again, we did we do have RBI Baseball, which is a licensed baseball game, an arcade game. We do have NBA Playgrounds, which is a licensed game but an arcade game. But from a simulation mm-hmm. perspective, we've lost MLB 2K, we've lost NHL 2K. Uh, you know, we there we lost MVP baseball years and years ago. We lost NFL 2K. Why don't we, with, with all of these, you know, we're talking billions of dollars. Why aren't we seeing more people come back to, to make more of these simulation sports games? So, <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, let me see if I can kind of wrap around why that's going on. First is that... Games are incredibly difficult to make, especially today. Yes. And, and, and we've had a consolidation in the number of studios out there. We've had talented developers leave the big console space to go make their own games, either in the indie scene or on the mobile scene. Um, getting high-quality, great people is very difficult and very expensive. You have incredibly lean risk-reward profiles you're working with if you're a publisher investing money in developing video games. You have... The the bets are so big. And you're talking two to three years of development to get a game off the ground. That's incredibly costly. You're talking, you know, tens to high 60, 70 million to try to get a game off the ground. You have to believe that there's a market opportunity that you can win at, and you don't have three versions of a game to get it right anymore. You don't have the money. You don't have the time. The opportunity cost is significant because you could be applying those people and those funds on a new IP or a new type of game or a game that's in some other genre that perhaps the people you have have experience with. And you're going to try to find the bets that you think have the best chance of bringing a return. If I had $70 million in three years or two years, the last thing in the world I'm going to do is try to go up against an established player in the sports space. It's the, the licensing fees are too high. 
you have a highly engaged and loyal consumer base that you're going to have to fight for every single one of them to defect what they've played for years and what their friends are playing and try to get them to defect into your game. Like that's a fight you're not going to win. So I think it's just a case of the bets being so big, the stakes being so high and trying to find market opportunities that you think you can win at. And I think that's why you're not seeing a big new entrance into this space. It's just, it's just too risky. Very good. All right, well, let's do a few tweets. What do you say? Okay. Got a tweet from our friend Rob Morris. Twitter alias Rob1878. Why do you guys think there is no boxing game on current gen? Great question. I mean, my sense is that boxing is not as popular as it used to be in mainstream sports. It's not my sense. It's, it's just true, although there are obviously still the big-time boxing events. But I also, and so that's clearly one, one step in the wrong direction, but also knowing a little bit about licensing. You know, boxing doesn't have sort of a central licensing group. There's multiple confederations or cartels or whatever you want to call the different boxing federations. You know, individual boxers have their own licenses. Historic boxers tend to be of much more interest to people, at least certain group of people than current boxers. So I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. What do you think, Matt? Uh, that's a great point on the licensing bit. I, I mean, from so the way I look at it is uh, EA Vancouver was the studio that put out Fight Night Round 3, um, a great Fight Night game, uh, still a great game. Fight Night Round 4, also very solid. You can go back and play those games now. They play as good as they did uh, when they launched. Uh, but those cats turned into EA Canada, and now they're making UFC games. So... Um, they believe the opportunity is with UFC. Uh, and you know what? So far, that, that title's done pretty darn well. So um, I can't fault them for thinking the market opportunity is now uh, on the UFC side rather than the boxing side. Although I'm with you. I'd love a good new boxing game. Like, you know, and you look at some of the other fighting games like Arms, which I guess is kind of the same thing, but in a really cartoonish, goofy way. That's not going to give you the same kind of thing you want from a from a fight night, um, which were just fantastic boxing sims. Uh, maybe it comes back someday, but um, yeah, I have to imagine both the licensing and the fact that uh, you think you have a better market opportunity with another similar um, type of sport is probably some of those reasons why. You know, before we go to the next tweet, you mentioned UFC. We hadn't talked about it, but it is... I, again, it's another game that I sort of I hadn't really considered successful. I don't hear about it a lot in you know the traditional sports game places, although I'm you know it just could be because I'm not looking for it. I don't think it shows up in the top ten of NPD very often. I don't I don't recall it sort of being heavily highlighted in the sort of the EA financials and stuff. But again. Just it could be because I'm not really looking for it. Is UFC a successful franchise for EA? Well, I mean, tough to know without understanding the, the contracts and the licensing and what it costs to make them. In terms of market performance, it's a solid, it's a solid mid-tier uh, title. It it does pretty darn well. I mean, from my perspective, I look at it and they go, oh, that's pretty good. So, <laughs> like it it 
charted uh, it charted at launch, uh, and then kind of fell off a little bit. But it's been a steady performer. It hasn't like fallen off a cliff or anything. It just kind of continues to do what it does and has built a, a nice little customer base. And I'm sure they want to grow that over time. And yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, our friend uh, Gamer Goalie asks: Is it worth making a game without a license? To actual teams or players, or can a generic sports game do well? I sort of jumped in and answered or, or responded first to the last tweet. So, Matt, I'll let you respond to this tweet first. So, Backbreakers was a thing, and I don't know if you remember Backbreakers. Uh, sure. Backbreakers yeah. was a, yeah a football game, unlicensed uh, players and teams. Uh, let's just say it didn't do very well, and that's kind of become the like the benchmark study for trying to do a sports game without licensing, especially for some of the big team sports. It's just, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. So uh, there's been very little success with that strategy. And uh, I think ultimately that's why no one even bothers. Yeah. I mean, as a consumer, (laughs) I find it hard to get excited to play a sports game without licenses and teams or players, right? Pro Evo is kind of an example. It has clearly some licenses. It's got licenses for several top clubs, including, I believe, Barcelona and Liverpool and I think Barusa and some other ones. But but it, it doesn't have a whole lot of league licenses and and most of the clubs are generic versions of themselves. And it... Uh, again, as we talked about earlier, may or may not be particularly profitable, profitable enough to keep getting made at least. But I just, as a consumer, I don't, for whatever reason, I don't get excited or it's hard to get excited about a game that's purportedly like being a real world simulation sport without the real world simulation, you know, teams and players and leagues and competitions and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, how, how meaningful was the transition for OOTP when they went to, uh, to the official license? Was, was it as meaningful as I think it must have been? It was dramatic. Absolutely wow. dramatic. Right. And this is, this is a game that it, you know, out of the park baseball, it was not particularly difficult to do mods, right. To, to import all sorts of different things. And there was a vibrant and still is a vibrant mod community around the game for, for all kinds of different things. But still, it was dramatic in terms of in terms of a lot of things. Number one, it, it certainly helped in sales, but it also helps in prestige too. And and we're now associated with Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association, and we've been able to, you know, through a tremendous amount of hard work, you know, extend those relationships in ways that were not really possible two years ago. Uh, and weren't even considered. And, you know, we, we've had a chance to appear on the MLB Network a couple times, Franchise Hockey Manager, which is also now licensed by the NHL. It was not for its first uh, two titles, but we did get the license for the NHL last year. We were featured on the NHL Network. Like, these are these are a big thing. So it was of dramatic importance to out-of-the-park developments for both out-of-the-park baseball and Franchise Hockey Manager to get the license. Yeah, I was, I've been a player since 2009, I think. It's been a while. Uh, where I played the game every year. And uh, just even as a long-term fan and someone who did mod the leagues every every time, like I knew I was in a very small minority of folks who would go to that kind of crazy extreme, uh, it was meaningful to me as someone who's a long-time fan. Like, you know what? 
this is legit now. Like I, I have everyone and I have all the logos and all right, this is, and it's the same, like it's the same engaging game, but just having that little bit of extra was, was super meaningful just from a, like a, a affinity standpoint. So yeah, I think those are like the, the reasons why you're not going to see that the, the game still costs a ton to make. And so, you know, if you're placing bets, uh, you know, an unlicensed sports game, or, you know, do you make a, a new action RPG? Eh, you probably go for the RPG. You have a, you have a better chance of success. Yeah, it, it's a good point. Although I, I would say that if you, if you think you got something, you, it, you can make a go of it without a license. You know, it, it's not impossible, right? You can give it a go. It, it, you need to have something that sort of differentiates yourself. Like clearly Super Mega Baseball, for example, is not a simulation baseball game, but has a tremendous amount of depth. And, and it is a non-licensed, you know, obviously it's got all sorts of fictional and creative players and stuff. So again, it's not a simulation game. But they've really got something good with the Super Mega Baseball game, so I'm glad that they sort of went about it from the way they did. Now, I don't know how the game has done sales-wise. They're obviously coming out with the second one, uh, which is now scheduled for next year. So, again, if they're making it, something something good must be happening. So See, that's, but, that's the beauty of, like, being a developer and, you know, having you, – you grow up in AAA as a developer and then you see the new scene now where you can go out and with a small team – make a game and get full distribution on the digital channels. Um, why that's so appealing for so many great developers. They can have an idea like that and just go do it instead of having to work through a big publisher uh, where like everything is risk reward and, and placing bets. So, I mean, that's one of the beauties of the current market is just the freedom that people have to, to take those kind of bets. You are so right. I mean, you know, out of the park baseball and franchise hockey manager would not, we would not be where we are now without the digital distribution platform of steam, for example, right? Like people can clearly go to our website and buy our games and they can, and they do, but being on steam just automatically gives you such a wider distribution opportunity just because of the sheer numbers of people who are on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear a lot from people, you know, played games for a long time and they, they kind of pine, some of them pine for the, the PS2 era or, oh, I remember when, you know, games were like this. And I'm like, look around, man. Like, you have more variety. You have so much more choice. You have so much more power as a consumer. Like, there's never been, this is like the golden age of gaming. And, and if you can't see that, I feel bad for you because, like, <laughs> no matter what you want to play, or make or sell like you can do it now better than you've ever been able to do it before it's what makes the market so exciting got one here from uh from our buddy keith uh who asks how do publishers get away without divulging sales numbers when every other entertainment medium such as music and movies fully disclose i've you know it, it is interesting for example electronic arts is a publicly traded company but they don't tell you how many units of Madden or NHL or uh, you know any other any any of their games sell unless they want to, right? There's nothing stopping them from. And and I know like 2K has has definitely in years past said, hey, we sold X amount of millions of numbers of NBA 2K, for example. But yeah, it, how do they you know get away? I don't know if get away with is the right term, but you know why don't they? And and why aren't they as in some cases publicly traded companies? Why aren't those numbers sort of part of which is disclosed as they 
go through their you know reports and and such i i wish i knew uh i've also wondered that question for many years uh in the industry i i don't know um but it it certainly would be interesting uh but you know i don't quite understand the level of secrecy around things like uh, launch dates or game announcements either uh so <laughs> i wish i knew i wish i had an answer i just don't um but you know more transparency is always good in my book but uh it's way above my pay grade so i i geez i wish i had a better answer <laughs> all right well matt piscatella from the npd thank you so much i could go on for another hour or two so why don't we just be sure to have you join us again real soon to continue this conversation and talk about a whole bunch of other stuff too. What do you say? Love it. That'd be awesome, man. Thanks for, thanks for chatting. It's been really fun. Thank you. You're very welcome. Where can people find you? Uh, your Twitter feed is one of my favorites because all, you know, not all, but you're certainly spending a lot of time talking about things that I love to hear about, which is video game sales numbers. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so on Twitter, I'm at the very creative handle of Matt Piscatella with one P, uh, like something you'd step on, uh, like uh, previous girlfriends used to, but, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> but Matt Piscatella on Twitter. I also I started a YouTube thing. Um, yes. I've, I've got a lot of work to do on that to really sh- uh, sharpen it up. Uh, it, it's very boardroom, and I know I got to, you know, glitz it up a bit for the mass market. I'm also on YouTube where I do a, uh, summary of the um, release in terms of like the key trends and some of the cool little bits and bobs uh, from the data release and I'll be on there again next Thursday uh, when we, re- we release September numbers fantastic well again thank you we're going to have you on again soon I appreciate it and thank you for everybody for listening hope you enjoyed the show and we will talk to you again next week If you text PRESS ROW to 727272, you get a free one-night game rental from Redbox. You know, video games are super fun and they're super expensive. And once you bust open that plastic, you're stuck with them. And that's why Redbox lets you try out the hottest new games risk-free. Right now, you can rent Middle Earth, Shadow of War, Destiny 2, NBA 2K18, and more. So just text PRESS ROW to 727272 for a free one-night game rental. Redbox, the smarter way to watch and play. The offer expires December 31st, 2017, subject to additional terms. Charges apply for additional nights. Payment card required. If you're not in Text Club, Redbox will send you an additional text with an invite to join their recurring alerts. Message and data rates may apply. For terms, visit redbox.com slash text club. And for the privacy policy, visit redbox.com slash privacy.